The Pearlfishers really has everything that a 19th century opera audience would have hoped for. It has an exotic location, far away from the huffing, puffing world of industrial Europe. It has a location, of course, where you can imagine doing things that are utterly forbidden at home. The promise of love, or is it sex that challenges social convention? And even better, profane love triumphing over the sacred variety, when the priestess Leila decides to forego her vows and marry Nadia. Then there's one of the most appealing of all tenor baritone duets in the sacred heart of the temple for Nadia and for his rival for Leila, Zorga, newly elected headman of the village where they live. Bizet was just 25 when he wrote The Pearl Fishers. He'd won the prestigious Prix de Rome and was ready on his return to make his mark on Paris music. But talent, alas, and opportunity didn't always coincide in Paris in the 19th century. So no wonder that he jumped at the commission to write an opera for the Théâtre Lyrique, even if it meant putting to one side a work that he was already working on for the more prestigious com Opera Comique. The new libretto was by Eugène Comont and Michel Carré, uh, and the commission was offered on April 1863 with an opening night scheduled in September. A pretty short order to write a full-length opera. Bizet therefore burnt the midnight oil, often borrowing his music from earlier works. So there's music from a projected opera that never happened called Ivan IV here, and there's also from a rejected setting of the Te Deum. The audience for the first night on September 1863 was enthusiastic enough to call for Bizet to take a stage call. But it was a different story next morning, and in the coming days, the critics had sharpened their knives and were ready to draw blood. Perhaps the unkindest cut of all came from Benjamin Jouvin in the Le Figaro, who wrote, there was neither fisherman in the libretto nor pearls in the music. Well, the opera was given 18 performances and then it disappeared and it wasn't revived for 11 years and by then, of course, Bizet himself was dead. Indeed, you could argue that it was another 100 years before Bizet's other opera entered the regular repertoire. And now it's here at the Colosseum, but also with a very contemporary agenda that we're going to discover in the course of our conversations this evening. We have four guests. We're going to be joined by Rian Lois, who is covering the role of Leila in this production, and by Richard Pearson, who's a member of the music staff at English National Opera, and they'll be exploring the music in Bizet's other opera. We're also joined by Dr. Cassidy Johnson, who's a senior lecturer at University College London, where she researches and teaches about disaster risk, post-disaster recovery, and climate change adaptation. But will you first welcome, please, Penny Woolcock, who directed this production of Bizet's other opera. Penny Woolcock. Penny, I've used the word um, other opera about this. Um, it really doesn't do justice to it, does it, to call it his other opera? Well, it's an opera that people, because he was so young when he wrote it, that people can be very snooty about. And often people say, oh, it's got this one great duet and uh, nothing else. But, I, you know, all of us who work on it think it's much better than that. There are actually three really great duets, and each of the soloists has 
a beautiful aria. Many of them are actually very difficult to sing. So when I actually heard it, I thought, you know, this is really worth taking seriously. And I've done it here at the NO three times and at the Met in New York um, uh, towards the end of last year. And each time, the, the different conductors, you know, Roland Bove we've got here and, and John Andrea Noceda, have, have really respected the music and we've not treated it lightly. You know, we've taken it as seriously as we can and tried to make it a beautiful thing for people to enjoy. At one level, this is indeed a truly 19th century opera. It, it sort of fits absolutely with that fascination with the Oriental, what is called Orientalism by the great critic Edward Said. Yes, and, uh, you know, it's really kind of repressed Europeans having this sort of mishmash of um, imagination about what the, the Orient, you know, represents. And one really good example of it is in Nadir's aria, where he comes back from his time where he claims that he was in the forest and he killed a lion, a panther, and a tiger, you know, all of whom actually live on different continents. So in order to sort of make sense of that, I've got a couple of children there, and he tells it to them because they're the only ones who can believe <laughs> it. You know? And it's a tall tale, really, but I think in the initial libretto, you were actually meant to believe that this is what he'd actually done. I sometimes think the love triangle between the two principles, the tenor, the baritone, and the soprano, in a way, although it's set somewhere in the Orient, is actually really as much about Paris and the way in which Paris conducted itself emotionally at this well, time. I mean, am I the only person in this room who's ever fallen in love with someone you aren't meant to fall in love with? I mean, I'd be very surprised, you know. Many of us at some time, you know, either have a partner who's in love with somebody else or we're in love with somebody when we really need to be with whoever it is that we've promised ourselves to. So I think that is the story that is real for everybody, actually, you know, and, and the kind of painfulness of that. And one of the things that I think is really special is that, um, you know, love in, um, or rather betrayal in romantic relationships is something we're very familiar with in, in fiction. But, but the betrayal of friendship is something that's very unexplored. And again, you know, when, you know, you fall out with, with a close friend, it's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? It's only happened to me maybe once in my life, but it's something that people don't write about very much. And actually that, the, the friendship between the two men, and they've promised that they're not going to pursue the same woman, and one of them sneaks behind the other's back. You, know, you can really feel the pain of that. And, and that betrayal. So I feel that there are certain themes which are to do with love, with betrayal and friendship that are, are very current and, and truthful for any time. And then there's also, you know, the, the sea, which is the fourth character. And again, that has a very kind of contemporary resonance. And to be fair, you know, perhaps even 10, 15 years ago, the idea that a woman would need to be veiled from head to foot or get in, or be killed would, be, would have been something that we saw as being sort of medieval. And sadly, that also is not the case. You know, there are many places where it's, women aren't allowed to show anything other than maybe not even their eyes, you know. And so I think there are many, many themes in it which, which actually are, are not you know, frivolous or of another time or just to do with this Orientalist fantasy. The production opens with one of the most spectacular images, um, which I suspect we're going to see there. Um, 
Was this for you something very important? You, I know that you spent a lot of time getting this opening image that we see right. Well, what happened was that I um, directed Dr. Atomic, which is a 20th century opera about the Manhattan Project by John Adams. And um, I directed first at the Met, and it was my first opera. And so to do it at the Met was completely <laughs> terrifying. And I think John Barry, who at that time was the artistic director, was trying to make me feel better about, you know, that I, you know, I knew what I was doing. So he said, well, you know, we should talk about what you're going to do next. This is before opening night, which is very lovely of him. And he said, why don't you do something from the core repertoire, like the Pearl Fishers? And I thought, oh, really? And I listened to it. And this doesn't happen very often, but the opening image that you'll see is something that just came to me at that moment. And, and I just thought, I've got to see that. I had this image of somebody diving from the top of the proscenium arch to the bottom of the stage through water, and I just thought, that would be a beautiful thing to do. And then, of course, I say to other people, right, I'd like to see this, and then they have to figure out how to actually do it, you know. But um, it's... Um, well, I won't tell you what... But it, is, what a, it is a reminder of just how hard and tough the life these people live. Yeah, well, pearl fishing apparently traditionally was done by women on a breath. So it is, you know, completely, I mean, an astonishing feat to dive that deep and, you know, I don't think they had very long life expectancy. And people who earn their living from the sea, I mean, are really facing their own mortality, whether they're sailors. You know, you listen to the shipping forecast late at night and you have this image of people out there under very difficult conditions and there's nothing we can do. And again, you know, these villagers are getting somebody to pray um, for them. And I, I always think, well... I, I'm not a very religious person, um, but if there was a great big wave coming right now, I think <laughs> I would pray because there's absolutely nothing else you can do against this absolutely monumental force of nature, which reminds us that you know we're not quite as in control, homo deus, as we might like to think. Did you have a very clear idea from the beginning about where you wanted to stage this opera, what kind of community it was going to be? Well, you know, I had that opening image and then I, I did have a look at the way that it was normally staged, which wasn't very often, although everybody's keen on this production. And usually they had people doing very sort of peculiar, slightly Egyptian movements and wearing turbans and lots of eye makeup and jewels and, you know, they could look like they could come from anywhere. And um, I just thought, well, let's not do that. You know, let's try and respect what it says in the libretto, which is that we're in Sri Lanka. And so, and also, you know, Dick Bird and I, the designer, at that time, there was some, you know, the terrible floods in Bangladesh, actually. And I know that Cassidy will probably talk about this later, but every six months, people's houses are swept away and the land on which they live, and they just have to move somewhere else with their very few possessions. So this is some, you know, the, the government buildings in the big cities remain standing, but people living these very precarious lives, you know, they're everything is just destroyed so you know it was just trying also to humanize people because the the libretto is pretty crude you know they're constantly kind of baying for blood basically you know and you think you know and, and asking for help and you just think well what else can they do you know so 
we did look at a lot of kind of very precarious um, kind of shanty town images from people living on the edge of, of the sea and then tried to make something that somehow evoked that without being naturalistic because it's a stage, you know. But how, how easy is it to jettison the kind of historical baggage that so many operas come with? You've talked about those images and I can see them immediately in my mind from the first production with those turbans, jewels, mm. kind of vast amounts of coal around the eyes. How easy is it to sit down and start all over again? Well, it's easy for me because I'm not really a proper opera director, although I now regret having said that sentence, you know, that I, I didn't really come with all that baggage, you know. I, I hadn't ever seen a production of it before. I just looked at some images and I thought, well, that's ridiculous, you know. Let's, <laughs> let's try and do something that has a bit more meaning and see if we can pull it off. And you'll have to see whether you think that, you know, when, when you watch it. But that, that wasn't difficult, actually, because each time, a, I think, a director comes to a piece you know you want to interpret it in your own way so that that's what we can do you know we can't change the libretto you can't change the music and you don't want to you know but you want to tell the story in in the best way that you possibly can this is the third production here in the house the third in this house and then we've done it in new york yeah do you like as a director being able to come back and revisit what you've done and change things you know reconsider what you've done it's actually been amazing because i you know i'm i make films more than i direct operas although i have done it a few times and the lovely thing is that each time you, there's certain things you think, oh, I wish I'd done that, and then you can actually do it. You know, you can make it better, you can polish it, you can change things that you think didn't quite work. And the other thing is that the singers bring their own physicality, so you kind of reinvent it around them. And you'll see that, that Claudia has, is quite a feisty Layla, and that's because that's what she is, you know. And she and I were very keen to sort of explore that she wasn't just some downtrodden, you know, village girl who's being pushed around by everybody and succumbing to, you know, the first man who, who arrives. So actually, she has her own desires, and she's pretty defiant. And so I think she probably portrays that more than any of the others because that was something that she and I kind of found together. So that's very exciting as well. I, I, I like the idea that one of the things you as a filmmaker suddenly feel liberated about is the possibility to change things. Let me turn that round a little bit as the last question and ask you, do you think that the, the, the filmmaking that is so much part of your life in a way also played a useful role in thinking about how to put this on stage? I think what, what I love about the stage is you can be much more imaginative because in a way in film you're kind of stuck with realism, you know. You have a temple, you go and film in a temple. You're on the sea, you film in the sea, you know. Here you've got a box basically and somehow you have to make the sea, the village, the private moments, the temple, the collapse, the storm, it all has to happen in the same place. And, and there was one sort of, I'll just tell you one tiny funny story which because the stage isn't my world, you know, I wasn't brought up in it. Um, when I was wondering how to evoke the sea, I went to see an exhibition at the Hayward, um, and the artist had the, the sort of billowing pink silk with some sort of hot air underneath it, and I came back and I said, I've thought how to do the sea, we can do it with the silk and, and <laughs> hot air, and people were going, 
They've been doing that for hundreds of years and nobody <laughs> does it anymore because it's considered to be kind of old-fashioned. So, um, so actually doing it, was, I wasn't afraid of doing it because I didn't feel it was like this really hackneyed thing. I thought it was an amazing thing that I'd thought of myself. So in some ways, I think it kind of frees you up both to be more imaginative but also maybe to do things that other people would feel a bit afraid of, you know. Penny Wilcock, thank you very much. Do stay with us, please. Um, our next guests are Rian Lois, who is covering the role of, of, of Lelia in this production, and Richard Pearson, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Will you welcome Rian and Richard? <laughs> Rian, can I start by just asking you, uh, what kind of music does Bizet give your character? Um, well, totally beautiful. It's exquisite music. It's uh, extremely challenging. Um, and vocally very, very... It's like gymnastics for the voice. And it's, it's, in a way, it's like two roles because you need this sweetness and purity of tone. But yet when her duet comes with Zurga, it's... It's huge, very lyric, and and so I've I've seen I've it's the most challenging role I've ever learnt, and um, it's a role of two halves. Is the challenge in part because basically it's huge and long as well as demanding vocally? Yeah, it is long, and you know, as Penny was saying, you know, sometimes you get lovely duets and you get a lovely aria. With this, there's several duets, there's um, and there's several arias. And then there's the you know ensemble with the, with the chorus, and it's just relentless. It's really relentless. But again, you just need to keep that purity throughout the whole piece. But then it needs that lyricism as well. Bizet is a young man when he's writing this, this opera, uh, and I wonder how kind or gracious he is to the voice. Does he actually push his singers? Do you feel as though he's pushing the soprano register? To a certain extent, perhaps. I mean, it depends how you want to cast it as well, because this is a role that can be sung by a, a lighter voice, or I've seen it um, you know, being sung by a, a much heavier voice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's vocally, uh, you know, it's all over the place in terms of it goes really low and then it goes really high as well. So um, I've, he's been kind in the sense, you know, it's it's very lyric, it's beautiful, you know, got beautiful line to, you know, and there's lovely recit in his, as well. But it's just, the, I go back to these um, huge passages again where but then that's when it gets really tough because, you know, by the time her duet with, Leila's duet with Zurga comes around, she's already sung so much, you know, and it's, this is the biggest, the biggest thing for her. So um, you have to leave plenty in the tank. <laughs> what, what are you going to take from the tank and sing for us now? I'm going to sing Leila's aria. Um, at uh, the beginning of Act Two, Comme Autrefois, which is exquisite. Fantastic.
Keeps watch through a dark veil of 
so much. Fascinating to listen, really a question for both of you, to that aria, because you suddenly realise, and I've never heard it with this piano, how, how close it is already to, 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 to Michaela in, in Carmen. You're very true, actually, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So there's a kind of a throughness. Richard, can I ask you a question? When, when, when you first opened the score for this, what were your first, first impressions? Um, well, my first reaction was actually simply delight um, at the sheer amount of very beautiful music in the piece. It's rather a simplistic answer, but um, it's frankly, it's just stuffed with beautiful tunes throughout and some very exciting choruses. Um, so I was delighted to get to know it. Um, and, um, well, to talk a bit about the, the some of the themes. With the, 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 I suppose the, 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 the thing everybody knows, if they've never seen this opera, is indeed, as Penny said earlier, it's the great duet for tenor and baritone, exactly, or four yes. hundred percent in the sacred temple. Um, does that kind of permeate its way through? Does it become a great statement of, 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 of these two characters that kind of works its way through the whole score? Um, well, it does. I mean, it, I, I, I find that it has sort of changing significance throughout the piece and gradually accumulates dramatic significance. Um, it's worth saying that... Um, it's about the only theme he does repeat in the piece. Um, the prelude makes um, a bit of a return at one point, um, and there's one other theme, the great uh, hymn to Brahma, which comes a couple of times. Um, but most of them, I mean, he had the most extraordinary melodic gift. He had he, melody to burn. Um, if you think just for a moment of Carmen, the other opera, um, uh, if you think how just about some of the most famous tunes in all opera, they're all in Carmen, and people who've never heard an opera before will have heard the Toreador song or the Habanera. You know, he, he had this extraordinary gift. Um, and I think, you know, he, he um, one of the reasons for the popularity of his tunes is that they've got the most extraordinarily natural quality mm. to them. Um, again, if you consider something like the Habanera, it's strange to think that there was a time before it existed. It's almost one of these um, melodies that he discovered, if you know what I mean. Um, but to come back to the, the famous duet, um, um, I think it's got some of that same quality as well, if you just remember how it goes. And 
so on. I mean, as well as being utterly beautiful, it just feels so right, as if that melody had somehow always existed. I think a lot of his tunes have got this quality. Um, anyway, I think it's interesting just to trace a few of its appearances throughout the piece. We first hear it in the so-called Pearl Fisher's duet, sometimes known as the Friendship Duet. Um, and Nadir and Zurga sing this. We first hear the theme, though, on the flute, accompanied by the harp, um, as they sing, or they recall the occasion when they first both saw Layla, um, and they're singing about about Layla's beauty as they hear this theme, as as you, what you hear this theme. So the first appearance of it, it's firmly associated with Layla and her beauty, but then during the duet, they both sing of how their emotions and their growing passions for her threaten to destroy their friendship. But they say no, they say no nothing must divide us. Um, and they return to the famous theme. They sing that again, swearing eternal friendship. So by this stage, the theme has two associations, Layla's beauty, in fact, sometimes I think it's referred to as Layla's theme, but also um, Nadir and Zoga swearing eternal friendship. But then soon afterwards, a new priestess arrives in the village. Um, of course, it is Layla, but she's veiled, um, so no one knows who she is. And we then hear the theme just played in the orchestra, again on the flute, but accompanied by tremolando strings. So it's got an extraordinary free song about it. <laughs> Now, no one on stage knows who she is, but the orchestra is telling us, A, that it is Layla, and B, that this is where the drama really starts. Something's about to start, folks. You know, um, And then a little later on, in the same scene, um, as Zurga is explaining all of Layla's duties to her, um, that she must obey him, that uh, she must pray for the safety of the divers, and that, uh, crucially, that, that she's always got to remain chaste, um, and that if she yields to temptation, she will be killed. Um, and in reaction to this, Nadir, who's there, says, God, spare her that fate. And immediately, Layla sings to herself, Ah, that voice. And we hear the theme again in the orchestra. This time, the theme played on tremolando strings um, with a pizzicato accompaniment, and it's a sort of nervy, speeded-up version. <laughs> As Zurga sings, what is it? You're, you're scared. Something's, something's bothering you. Um, so with this repetition of the theme, the orchestra is telling us that Nadir's voice has a significance for Leila that we didn't know about. Um, as they say, the plot thickens. And so each time the theme recurs after that, it's another four or five times, I think, there's an extra layer of dramatic significance added to this very beautiful theme. It's not just about the friendship, it's not just about Layla's beauty, it becomes about the love triangle. Um, and then ultimately, um, in fact, it's the theme with which Bizet chooses to finish the entire piece. It has come to re represent all the dramatic threads, beauty, love, friendship, betrayal, and ultimately, forgiveness. And, mm -hmm. and how extraordinary that in fact, the thing that pulls it all together is actually happening in the pit as much as on the stage. Absolutely, yes. This 19th century idea of the orchestra constantly telling us what's going on and what we should think. Exactly, yes. I mean, it's, it's one of the tragedies that um, Bizet died mm. pretty young at the age of 36. You could see this 
um, uh, operatic composer just beginning to flex his muscles, particularly with his treatment of this theme, alongside his natural melodic gift, he had a real sense of the theatre, which you can see happening in this piece. Richard Pearson, thank you so much, as always, for taking us through part of the music of the opera. Our last guest this evening is Dr Cassidy Johnson, who teaches at University College in London. Will you welcome, please, Dr Cassidy Johnson. <laughs> Cassidy, do you recognise, when you uh, look at Penny's uh, production artist, do you recognise the community that she's started this opera in? Is it somewhere that has a, ge a real geographical meaning? I think the, the community really looks like a community that lives in an informal settlement. Uh, the, the set with uh, the shacks uh, makes it look like they're living in a very informal way, in a very temporary way. Uh, and also, the, it looks like a coastline. So it looks like uh, a, a community who lives on a coastline in a very temporary way. And, and yes, it's quite realistic like that. And, and presumably also a vulnerable community too. I think what, what we see uh, in the production is, is really their vulnerability. And, and, and that comes through, uh, I think, through the show through the, and through the storm that comes there. Uh, and I think just the way people are portrayed as living, uh, yes, it does show their vulnerability. And, and we see uh, when the storm comes that everything is washed away. Uh, and, and the shacks become basically submerged uh, underwater. And, and that's really quite realistic with how a lot of people in that region are living because of cyclones, because of uh, tsunamis uh, and, and those kind of disasters that are happening. And, and this is presumably also because the sea um, and its immediate environment is the only place where there is a kind of economical, economic opportunity for these communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, people are, I mean, this is a, a village uh, of, of fishermen. So, and, and a lot in, in that region, whether Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or, or southern India, uh, people are living like that quite precariously uh, in these small coastal villages uh, in ways that are very, very temporary. Um, and we saw after the, the South Asian tsunami in, uh, in the early 2000s where complete villages were washed away after the tsunami and, and people actually couldn't come back. Their land was taken uh, and they weren't able to rebuild. Uh, and sometimes they were able to rebuild through a lot of, a lot of resistance and, uh, and a lot of will. Um, <clears throat> but this is a very uh, precarious kind of life. Yes. But Penny talked about the extraordinary floods that we see, almost it seems, regularly in Bangladesh, mm -hmm. in which whole communities like this are swept away. Um, has climate change fundamentally altered or made more precarious the existence mm. of these communities? This, this way of, of living with the water in, in Bangladesh is a way of life. I mean, people have lived like that uh, since the beginning of time when they've, they've lived, the water comes uh, and it recedes. And so people are used to living with, in a very temporary state where they move all of their things uh, when the water comes and put them back when the water recedes and, and continue to do agriculture or fishing or whatever it is. Uh, so this is a, a way of life. 
Um, however, I think what we see with climate change is that uh, storms are becoming uh, more severe. Uh, and also, um, because of the uh, deterioration uh, of some of the vegetation and mangroves along these coastlines, the storms actually will have will inundate more, and so there becomes more saltwater intrusion uh, and and greater water that's coming in in the coastal areas. So certainly, that's something that both both climate change as well as uh, human degradation of the environment. Uh, is causing. And then we see a lot of other things with climate change uh, in that region, like uh, more rainfall. So, and there'll be more intense rainfall. So rain may be the same over the year, but it will fall uh, very strongly at certain points of time. So this also causes flooding. Mm. How, how have these communities had to adapt in new ways to cope with the increased risks under which they live? There's, there's, <clears throat> in one way, I mean, one might say that these communities are quite resilient because they've been adapting and people, people have been adapting for a long time to changes, environmental changes. Um, also in, in that area, uh, especially in, in Bangladesh, in, the, in this areas that are really affected by, by cyclones, Bangladesh and also uh, Sri Lanka, southern India, there's been a lot of work on warning systems, cyclone warning systems. So people, when a cyclone comes, uh, they know that it's coming and there are also shelters where they can go to to get refuge. Uh, so this has made a massive change in the numbers of deaths uh, of people affected by cyclones. But warning is one thing. What about prevention? What do the communities themselves do to protect themselves? Yeah. Well, from these large storms, there really isn't a lot one can do uh, besides get out of the way of the storm. I mean, the, the way that people build... Uh, houses are often destroyed, crops are destroyed, uh, one's belongings are completely destroyed. So, and, and some buildings remain, and this is why cyclone shelters, schools, uh, some government buildings are important buildings uh, for people to take refuge in. Uh, and short of being able to build all buildings like that, I think uh, there's not much one can do except get out of the way. Yeah. In the opera, again, see yeah. Pearlfishes, there's a clear sense of the power structure. Um, mm -hmm. It may be difficult uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the end, but there is a clear sense of where power lies. Mm -hmm. um, is this something that is also challenged in these communities by the increasing risk of disaster, mm -hmm. that the traditional ways in which a community organises itself mm -hmm. are fundamentally challenged and there is a kind of disorder as a mm -hmm. consequence? Mm -hmm. uh, Certainly, disaster can cause change. So we can see that often social structures in the when a disaster happens, such as a big cyclone or an earthquake, uh, there can be new sort of policies, new politics, new social structures that are ushered in at that point. Uh, and and sometimes uh, communities may become much more stronger. Uh, because they may bond in certain ways and and create resistance to certain kinds of political changes that come at them. So disaster is certainly a time of change. Uh, sometimes it can be positive social change. Sometimes it can be very negative and detrimental change. Are there other things that, that these people could be taught, they can learn 
that will ameliorate this situation? Um, the situation of politics? Yeah, or the, the politics the and the way the yeah. community organises mm. itself. Um, I think there's a, a lot of work that, that I've been doing uh, or supporting that uh, uh, with local organizations that try to uh, assist people who've been affected by disasters. And certainly um, there are organizations, for example, the Asian Coalition of Housing Rights that works with communities that been, have been affected by disaster and helps them to organize in a way that they can uh, get the get their needs met. So rather than going through normal government structures, they can actually organize, come together, mobilize, and say, "Okay, these are what these are the kinds of things that we need to rebuild. We need new houses. We need new boats. Uh, we need uh, schools, or we need better access to funds from climate change, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, uh, to to try to get their needs met. Yeah. But this requires leadership, presumably. And this may Certainly. not be quite the conventional leadership that these communities have lived under. So there must be a, a quite a lot, large learning process here. It requires leadership, but, but uh, in my experience, what happens is that there are always people in the community who are able to lead. And sometimes they need to be uh, given the tools and the sort of empowered to do so. Uh, and you see, um, for example, the Slum Dwellers Federation, which is based in India, but is an international federation of, of people who live in informal settlements. Um, and they organize through savings groups. Uh, and then they, they, uh, they negotiate through these savings groups. They, have, they enumerate about who's living there and eventually can negotiate for things from the government as well as providing their own services. Um, <clears throat> these kind of movements show that there are always people in those communities and, and usually women, often women, uh, who are able to take that leadership role if they're given some of the tools uh, and resources to do it. And, and how flexible, shall we say, is national government in responding to this? And how does mm -hmm. it react to pressure brought by precisely these community groups who see what needs to be done? Uh, we, we've been... Uh, in my work, I always, <clears throat> and a lot of my colleagues, we always advocate for uh, more resources to be given to communities and community-led initiatives. Um, unfortunately, I think there's still a mentality, uh, both from international funding, for example, funding that comes from the UK government even, uh, to national funding uh, to support uh, much larger organizations. Um, and, and so I think there really still needs to be a lot of, uh, a lot of awareness and advocacy done about really the, the roles that community-led organizations can take. Uh, and the way that they can orient development to best suit their needs and also often doesn't cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. yeah. The question that's implied by all that you've said and indeed by the production that Penny has directed here mm -hmm. is a very simple one. What can we do? I mean, this awful question, you know, that you have to ask yourself, what, what mm -hmm. can we do? What are the things we ought to do and can do mm. as individuals? Uh, <laughs> big, that's a very big question. Um, and I think... You know, from the, the perspective of, uh, of climate change, one is, around, one is around reducing our carbon footprints, all of us. Uh, and, and also, um, 
I think where we can, uh, supporting organizations um, that try to assist uh, with community-driven and community-based development. Um, there's often uh, emergency appeals after disasters. Uh, we can always uh, donate to those kind of appeals. Uh, and I think also advocate uh, our governments to, to do more uh, work to, for international development uh, and especially to assist people who are living in these very vulnerable regions and, and regions that are affected by climate change very, very strongly, um, such, as, such as southern Bangladesh. So it's hands in our pockets and bang at politicians' doors, basically. And, and, try to, and reduce our carbon footprint. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. We have a little time in hand, ladies and gentlemen, um, if you'd like to ask questions. If you just wait, there's a microphone coming towards you. I understand that Bizet had planned to set the opera in Mexico. I just wondered whether the panel know why he'd actually decided on Mexico, and if so, what the panel think about his decision to set it in Ceylon, and why particularly Ceylon? Penny, do you what do you think the op do you think the opera benefits in any way or um, by the change in setting? I, d I didn't, uh, maybe Richard knows about this Mexico idea. <laughs> I haven't I've never actually, heard it. I've got copies of the two uh, programmes for the two earlier productions, mm. but I haven't had a chance to read the later uh, programme of the current production, which I don't know whether it may hold the answers. I don't know whether it's actually discussed. No, we didn't. Uh, I wasn't aware of it. The only thing I remember about the librettist is that um, apparently he said, if I knew the music was going to be so beautiful, I would have written a better libretto. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know, maybe it was, you know, it could be Mexico, it could be Salon. So the only thing that makes it Salon, which obviously now is Sri Lanka, is the mention of the temple at Kandy, which is oh. an actual place mm. and a real temple. So that's where we, we know that that's where it's supposed to be. But apparently with tigers, panthers and... But you don't know why um, he's chose... I'm, no, he's and I don't know whether it would even have been his choice, actually. No. Yeah. It, it's certainly a thought that would resonate on a day in which America goes to the polls, <laughs> a Mexican yeah. setting. Thank you for all of you being here. Underneath your bottoms, maybe on your laps, are the lists of the upcoming pre-performance talks, and it's always splendid to see people coming back to them. On your behalf and my own, I want to thank our four guests. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>